Lights are on the house. Everybody's got all that done? <clears throat> yeah. No, not at all. I'm, I'm an ofer. I got none of the above. <laughs> none of the above. So we're going to we're gonna go to church here in a minute, but first we've got to go to school. All right? Uh, before we go to school, I've got to share something with you that I've discovered over Thanksgiving. I had, an, I had a eureka moment. I don't know if you ever had one of those. Uh, I thought I knew my wife very well, and I cleared it with her. She, she, she knows I'm going to talk about her today. Uh, usually she doesn't, but today she does. <laughs> uh, I had a eureka moment. when it, I thought I knew my wife better than I knew anybody. Those of you who are married, you, know, you kind of have that feel that I think I know her. I know everything there is to know about her. I think, I thought. Thanksgiving, Friday night after Thanksgiving, she's playing cards with her daughter and her mom. And all of a sudden, I hear her start, I mean, my wife is, I mean, she's a clinical therapist, so she's good at listening. She doesn't assume things about you. She's very compassionate. All those good things that would make you a good therapist, right? Like, that's what you want in somebody. She, like, some, something happened. She started, like, throwing barbs out, like, like personal, not attacks, that may be too strong a word. No, they, were, they were kind of attacks. They were like, like, she was getting mad. And that's something I never see my wife doing. And, and they were playing cards. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on in there? And then I realized that she was losing. <laughs> Normally my wife doesn't, she's not competitive at all when it comes to stuff like that. But that night, it was like, it was game on. I mean, she was, I don't, you know anybody who's competitive? Don't, don't elbow them. Don't, don't do that right now. Don't do that, please. You don't even look, don't even stare at them. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's the way... I'm like that. I'm usually the bad loser, right? I'm the one, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say I pout, but my wife would probably say I pout when I lose. You know, because I, I don't like to lose. Because it's, it's the worst. Why don't we like, to, whether it's a game or in life, why do you think we, we don't like losing? I've thought about this. Well, i got an answer already. You, you may be thinking one too. But what I've come up with is that, whether it's a game or in life, is that when we lose, we don't like it because we don't like not being in control. Like, we want... We want to be the one on top, the one who's saying, ha, ha, ha. You know, we want to be that one, right? Even if, even if you're not going to gloat. Some of you are too pious to gloat when you win. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> we all do that, right? We all kind of rub it in a little bit, you know, even if we do it with a smile and a kiss on the cheek. You still rub it in. Even the kiss on the cheek is just rubbing it in to people who are competitive like me. Like my wife, she can beat me, and she doesn't say a word. She just comes over and gives me a kiss. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe it, <laughs> right? It's like... Like, I'm, okay, I'm over the top, but, uh, uh, but yeah. So my wife, I saw that in her, and, and it made me think of being competitive and, and how that plays itself out in our lives and, and why that, that idea of being control is, is such a, a big deal, right? Today I'm, I'm talking about this, this hope for the defeated, right? Hope for when nothing else is working. Um, hope when... when Things when you're not in charge, because the newsflash is, is that you're going to lose at some point. You're, you're going to get beaten at some point. You're going to be defeated at some point, right? And so how might we respond? Because I believe that it's important because, because we don't always win. But if we, if we can know there is hope for us, even when we're defeated, then, then even when we're at our lowest, our low point actually becomes just another starting point. It changes, right? It's, it's, it just becomes a, the place where we are. It's not a value judgment anymore. The messenger of this message of hope is 
name is Zephaniah. Say that with me, Zephaniah. Yeah, it's, 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 he's one of those minor prophets in the Bible. Minor, short prophets. They wrote short books. Uh, if you want to know where they are, you go to the Gospel of Matthew and you turn left, and they're all right in there. There's 12 of them right in a row. Some of them may have five chapters, but usually they have three or four chapters, and that's about the extent of them all. We don't know much about Zephaniah, so that's why I say we're going to go to school before we go to church. Uh, so we're going to learn a little bit about Zephaniah, who he was, and it jumps right off the page for us uh, when we, to get to this hope for the defeated. It, it starts right out. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, Cushai, however you want to whatever your preference is, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. All these names, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what, what is that? We don't know anything about Zedekiah or Zechariah, oh my goodness, Zephaniah, except his lineage, right? What we do know from this is that it, he was a son of Cushi, which tells us that he was probably from the land of Cush, which means he was African, all right? So we get an African man in here as a prop, the first African prophet that we are aware of, anyway. He's the son of Gedaliah, the Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, who was a great king. He was, in a, he was an ancestor of the king. He was, his dad and his grandfather and his great-grandfather were all kings. His great-grandfather, Hezekiah, was a great king. You may have heard of him, King Hezekiah. If you've been reading Bible and whatnot, you've probably heard of him. But in, So he's the grandson of the king. He's an aristocrat, right? But instead of getting into the political vein of things... No. He gets into the, the spiritual side, right? He, begin, he dedicates his, his life to pursuing the things of God. That's what he's all about. As we'll see, Zephaniah, he takes a passionate stance against religious and moral depravity that's going on in his world. He had a strong message for, his pe- for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah, rather. He was entirely hopeful as to what, was going, what God was going to do in their midst. Zephaniah ministered like Habakkuk during the reign of King Josiah, as we see, right? You may not know who King Josiah was. Well, I need to tell you about him because he's one of the most important characters in the Old Testament because during his reign is when a lot of these, these minor prophets, when they wrote, when they, when they served. So what was going on? Well, just to back up, to rewind, right? King David, you probably heard of him. Even, even if you're not a Christian, you probably heard of King David. He reigned... The, the Israel and Judah for many years, he was the greatest king, right? A uh, man after God's own heart. After he died, his son, not his oldest son, but one of his youngest sons, actually, Solomon, became king, right? Solomon was the, the wisest man in the world, right? He, one of the wealthiest men in the world. He built the temple. He did amazing things, King Solomon did. Wrote the Proverbs, wrote a lot of the Psalms along with King David. So he was, uh, he ruled the throne for for many years, and after, when he died, his son became king. Now, and this is when things kind of went south, when Rehoboam, his son, became king, the nation of Israel split into the north and the south. The northern tribes, which would be, remain known as Israel, and the southern tribes, which would be known as Judah, uh, they, they became a civil war between them, right? It said that the north... And south, when they divided, the, the, the north never had a good king, meaning that, they, that they, they never had a godly man as their king. They had men who pursued other gods. They had men who pursued no gods at all. 
who served as their king, which is kind of odd that, that they would be the king of Israel when they didn't worship God. But, but that was exactly the problem, right? Eventually, they would be conquered by the Assyrians, and that would kind of be the end of Israel, the north. Now, south, Judah, we know that they had a few good ones, and they had a few, they had a whole bunch of bad ones. They would have a great king, and then his son would take over, and he would kind of do things that sons do, and then his son would take over, and he kind of, he did all the things the grandsons did, and, and then his, you know, and he just kind of went further and further away, and then somebody would wake up one day and, and bring everybody back to the Lord, and it would be great for a few years, and then before you know it, they were back off in that same, so they kind of went through this cycle of, of living for God and rebelling against God. King Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather, was a man of God. Josiah's father and his grandfather, though, were not men of God. As a matter of fact, they were terrible rulers. They did, they, the scriptures record some of the things that they did, and it's, it's horrific, and we'll, we'll look at some of them here in just a moment. But 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles tell us the story of King Josiah, the, the last good king that was to come out, right? The last, the last hope, right? King Josiah. 2 Kings uh, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adadiah. She was from Boscoth. Why did they put all this in here? Because they want you to know. They want us to know that these were real people, real families from real places, that we, can, we, can, we know it, we can trust it, we can rely upon it. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. This is Josiah. Became king when he was eight. I don't know what you were doing when you were eight. I was in third grade looking forward to recess. That was pretty much the end of my world right there. I, was, I didn't go beyond recess. Like That was, that was the, the ultimate for the day was recess. Maybe lunch, but definitely recess. Like I didn't think beyond that. This young man was the king of one of the most powerful nations in the world. At eight, beyond me how, uh, how that worked, but that's how it worked. In the eighth year of his reign, Second Chronicles tells us, while he was still young, yes, he was 16 at this point, right? 16 years old. He began to seek the God of his father, David. At 16 years old, he says, oh, David was different than my dad and my granddad. Like, like David... He lived for something different. And so he begins to seek after God. Now, what, what they don't have is they don't have the scriptures to read. They don't have a temple to go into. All he's got are the, the stories that have been written down about his father, his, his father David, his great-grandfather, or his great-great-great-grandfather David. In his 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. It's 12th year, so he's 20 years old now. He begins, to, he, he's convicted by God. He, he knows that God is the true God, and he starts to clean up the city. He's taking control as king, right? He's taking, I mean, he's saying, no, 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 this isn't right. We're cleaning it up. So he gets rid of all these idols all around town, starts to rejuvenate the city. And in that moment, or a few years later, in his 18th year, he's 26. He begins to purify the land and the temple. He sent Shaphan and Azaliah and 
He sent him to the ruler of the city with Joah, son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. Okay, so 26 years old. He sends some people to the... To, all right, let's, let's get this city together. We're, we're, we're the people of God. Let's, let's make it look like that, right? Rebuild the temple, fix it up. And you know what happened when they're fixing up the temple? The scripture tells, if you read 2 Kings chapter 22, it tells you that they're cleaning up the temple. I can just see them. You know, like y'all have a spring cleaning here at church or whatever, you know? Like, Debbie's going to be back there cleaning up after that bazaar yesterday, and she's going to be cleaning up, and she's going to find something somebody left behind. And she's like, oh, my goodness, I better call them. Isn't that what you would do? Yeah, she said, I better call them. I know exactly who that belongs to. And she'd call them up, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, thank you. Oh, I've been looking all over for it. But they'd be, she'd be excited, or they'd be excited. Same thing happened here. They're cleaning up the temple, and lo and behold, what do they find? I mean, they're, you know, they're dusting off the cobwebs off the altar. They're, they're cl- getting the furniture, fixing the furniture back up, cleaning stuff up. And what do they find? The Bible. <laughs> they find a copy of the Bible. It's crazy to me. Like, like they were like, the people of God, right, who just said, you might have seen it. <laughs> and then you forget to look for it, right? So you go years, generations without the copy of uh, God's word, of the law, the Mosaic law. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 10 of 2 Kings. Then Shaphan, this guy he had sent to take care of the temple, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Because if you're a king, you don't have to read. You pay people to read, right? They read for you. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He heard God's word for the first time, and he was convicted. You ever experienced that, where you read something in the Bible, and you're like, wow, I can't unread that, right? Been there? I know I have. That's exactly what his experience. He can't, I can't unhear that. I have to do something about what I'm hearing. This is God's holy word. This is God's law that's been passed down for generations. We neglected it. It's been discovered. What do I do with this? So you can see that he started this religious revival in Jerusalem, in, in Judah, right? But everything wasn't great. But at this time, a lot, God sent these messengers, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. We already talked about Habakkuk. Great things are happening. But just like anywhere, just like in your life when great things are happening, not everything's great, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like just because things are going pretty well, everything's not good. The problem is, when things are going great, the, the problems are just under the surface. Just far enough below the surface that we're like, ah, that's, that's not a problem, though. That's not a problem, right? That, that'll be all right. That'll work itself out. Everything else is great. Oh, man, we're happy. We're, marriage is great. Everything else is there's this other thing that's just bubbling underneath the surface. That it's not a big enough problem that you have to pay attention to it, but it's there if you knew to look. Right? You ever been there? You know what I'm talking about, right? That's the way it is. We don't know it was a problem until we get into, the, into it and we're like, oh, I should have known. I should have known that was going to come up, right? I, I saw it. I, I should have seen it, but I didn't see it. But it was there all along. I ignored it. Oftentimes we don't appreciate those little things that are just below the surface until we can look back and see how it affects us. Until we can look back and say, yeah, it, it was there all along. I just didn't deal with it. I just didn't deal with it. That's why prophetical leaders are so important to us. People in our lives, prophetical friends, 
People in our lives who can see things in us and call our attention to it. So we can say, oh, yeah, I better deal with that, shouldn't I? Yeah, you better deal with that, right? That's the role that Zephaniah and all these other prophets live, is that they don't overlook problems. They're like coming in with a flashlight, one of the bright, bright, like one of those uh, halogen flashlights, you know, and it's super bright, and it shines on it. When it shines on it, it reflects light off, and you're like, oh, my goodness. I was helping a friend track a deer the other night. I did that. I shined my light, and it shined on a, on a glass bottle that it was in the ground. It was like a mirror. It was like right back in my face. I was like, oh, my goodness. No denying that. that I know what that is. Right? That's what, that's what the prophetical leader is like in the, in the Bible. They shine the light on there, and it's like, okay, we've got to deal with that now. Everybody sees it now. That's his role. And so he shines the light on two realities here in this short little three-chapter book. Two realities that I believe are still in our lives, even when our lives are going pretty well. Things that we need to pay attention to. And I believe that, has, I believe that Zephaniah can help us. Do you join me? In verse 4, the first reality is the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. These are strong words in the first two chapters of this little book. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord, who also swear by Molech. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Oh, sorry, got off that too quick. Those who seek the Lord, neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. So, so what he's talking about here is that people who just out and out worship other gods. I'm, I'm against them. He said, I'm even against the people who out and out worship other gods, but also they, they, like, they like come to the temple too. But they're just going to cover all their bases. So they're going to they're entertain all, right? God says, no, no, no. I, I, won't, I want the ones who are only about me. That's what he's talking about. Everybody else? be judged. Who's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about two gods he brings up here. The, the first one is Baal. Uh, the, this is the god of the Canaanites. Uh, the, the con- they had conquered the nation of Israel years before, and they left behind their, their gods, their Asherah poles, their, their, their little G-gods, their little statues. They'd left them around town, and, and people had taken them home, had adopted them in, had, had adopted in false gods, had worshipped false idols of their neighbors, and just kind of made them theirs. The second one that they mentioned there is Molech. You may have heard of this one. This one is, well, there's still people that worship Molech today. These, this was the god of the Ammonites. Molech requires the sacrifice of children. <clears throat> yep. So the Jews were worshiping a god who called for the sacrifice of their children. Over and over again, they stopped worshiping the true god, the living god, Yahweh, and they turn to little blocks of wood or stone. They turn to, to practices that included killing their own children. They chose to worship a God who couldn't hear their prayers, who had never done anything for them, instead of a God who had delivered them again and again and again and again and again. Well, we'd never do anything like that. That'd be stupid, wouldn't it? Crazy, right? 
hey, yeah, we'd never do that. Until you think of what idolatry really is. I found this definition, and it fits pretty well. A heart condition. It's the craving, the wanting, the enjoying, the being satisfied by anything more than God. Anything more than God. I'm not going to ask you to stand up if you, or, or I might ask you to just stay seated if you've, if you've dealt with this, right? Because we all have, right? We all are drawn to idolatry in one way or another. You may think, oh, well, how did I do that? Well, let me ask you. Do you treasure anything more than God? You would say, no, no. Oh, no. Do you prioritize anything before God? Does anything come first in your life, in your schedule? Does anything bring you more pleasure than the things of God? Do I place my, my identity in anything over my status as a child of God? Do I look to anything or anyone to meet my needs instead of God? Do I seek fulfillment in anything outside of God? Do I seek comfort outside of God? <laughs> Those are tough, right? Those are tough questions. They kind of make us uncomfortable. We want to squirm, and, but we're, we've got to be still because if I squirm, I know I'll look guilty, right? So I, I'm not moving. I'm going I'm to sit here completely paralyzed because I hear these words, and I'm like, oh, yeah, oh. That was the response that Zephaniah was hoping to get, that God was hoping to get from the people was conviction, the same conviction that he felt when he heard the words of God's law read to him. He was wanting that for everybody. God wanted that for everybody. Joshua 24, 15 tells us. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond, who served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. First and foremost, we have, it's a choice to make. Which God are you going to worship? Right? The God I create or someone else creates and gives to me? Or the God of the Bible? It's up, it's up to us. We get to each make that decision. But Joshua says, but as for me and my family, we will serve my household. We will serve the Lord. That's why whenever I work with couples, I always ask, are you all on the same page? with your faith. Because if you're not, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Those of you who, those of you who are, are here today or you are, you participate in worship and your spouse isn't on the same page with you spiritually, man, I pray for you. I, I, I really do because I know how hard that can be. I, I know how hard that can be. That, that unfortunately, we as followers, we as Christians, we tend to compromise. We tend to give up. That's what that's what was the problem, was that the Christians tended to compromise their convictions because of their love for somebody else. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he goes on, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death, he says. It's that big a deal. Put it to death, whatever it is. Flee from idolatry, he said in 1 Corinthians 10. See, we don't go around looking for gods to worship, you and I. I, I, I doubt you do. 
right? What happens, though, is we tend to, like, just slide into worshiping other gods. We slide away from God. We, 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 want, we want what we want, right? We want to be in control. And so since, since I want to be in control, and, and God would say, you better not do that, well, I, I tend to, I'll just ignore that part of God's word. I'll just pretend like I didn't hear it, even though I did hear it. We, we just kind of slip into idolatry. When, because we want to do what we want to do. When the reality is, is that true freedom is found under God's authority. Truest, the truest freedom is found under God. I mean, God wants you to be free. He wants us to be free. He wants, and, and live, being free means to live as we were created to live, as we were designed to live in a relationship with him, under his authority. Not as our own authority, not for us to decide who is God, but to just accept that he is the creator. God wants us to turn to him first, to trust him most, to follow him only. It's not a matter of denying us things. We get in our head that God, God just wants, doesn't want us to have fun. No, it's not the point at all. He wants us to have things, and he wants, us, and he wants to give them meaning. He doesn't want it to be just hollow consumption. He wants it to give, give it significance, and it's only given significance in him when he's at the center of it. Our money. Question for you. Do you draw a sense of stability from God or from your savings account? Where does your security come from? Do, do, you, do you love the things that money can buy you more than you love God? Do they bring more joy to you than the things of God? When it comes to your career, do you identify more by your position there, by the things, by the control that you can exert there, than, than you having to trust the Lord? When it comes to your how you spend your time, your hobbies, this might be the toughest question. Do we invest time and energy into our hobbies? That I should be in, when that I, the same time that I should be investing in the things of God, do I just spend them on me? Are you more concerned with how the world sees you than how God sees you? It's not that we're trying to earn his approval, but, but because we are approved, do we live for that? When it comes to our, our love interests, our spouses, our, our friends, our family, are we looking for someone else to complete us? Are we looking for somebody to rescue? Do we, do, we give our, do we give ourselves to our kids, to our grandkids, rather than to God? Idolatry. All of these are traps of idolatry that we just kind of we don't go out looking to, I'm going to make my kids my idol. No, we don't do that. But as we give ourselves to our kids, it's okay, while they're babies, somebody's got to take care of them, right? But eventually they've got to grow up. Eventually. We have to ask ourselves, where are we looking for fulfillment? In God? I pray it is. Otherwise we're dealing with the reality of idol worship, idolatry. The second reality that that Zephaniah spoke to was complacency. Verse 12, 
At that time, I will sort, this is God speaking here, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on the dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. God's not doing anything about anything. So why should we? Why should we care about communing with God? Why should we care about honoring Him? Why should we care about worshiping Him? He's not doing anything. When's the last time He did something for us? Why live for Him? Those are questions we ask ourselves to, to justify our comfort, to justify our doing things that are, frankly, in our interests only. Until we come to something bigger than us, right? We come to a problem, a, a, an illness, a sickness that, that is, frankly, it's, it's way outside of our ability. And then we're quick to pray. We have an accident that almost killed you. And then we are quick to pray, aren't we? I know I am. I know I did. Right? I'm praying like a wild man. Otherwise, I mean, if I don't really need him, I'll just keep him like that elf on the shelf. I'll just leave him up there, and he can watch everything. He can kind of keep an eye on stuff, and Christmas Eve, we'll pull him out when we need him. But God sent Zephaniah 25 years, 25 years before this judgment was to occur. Sent him 25 years ahead of time. Like, like I know you don't need me now, but you're going to. He gave him plenty of warning. See, it's not, it's not that he gives us, that he doesn't care, he kind of gives us too much time. No, he, he's going to encourage you for the next 25 years. He's going to be calling you back for 25 years because it's coming. He says, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry of the day of the Lord is bitter. Mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day, oh no. We're, before I get into this too much, so we're used to hearing about God's judgment and we think God is going to judge. This is, uh, frankly, PG-13, maybe even rated R, like description of God's judgment. All right, so be warned. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress uh, and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for, we will make a sudden, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Now, we think of God's judgment as those people, right? Those people that are doing the wrong things, those, those bad folks. They're going to be, the, this is all people, all. What? God is bringing judgment. He, he wants us to pay attention. Don't be complacent, he says. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Don't be complacent, don't be complacent. Pay attention to the things in your world. God has created us to be his image bearers in this world. To do his work. To love the people that he loves. To help the hurting. To bring good news to the broken. God has, God has left us here to reach the lost. To help those in need. That's why we're still here. Because there's still a mission for the church. 
We pray it all the time. We'll pray it later when we have Holy Communion. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. True freedom is found under God's authority. Living our way, His way. The way He designed us. The way He has called us. The way He has created us. Not to just say, ah, well, God's not really doing much these days. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. Oh, it is a big deal, he says. It's important to me, God says. It's so important that those who don't, oh, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. The day of the Lord. That's one message that is, that's one warning that is consistent throughout this little short book. It's like 60 verses, it's less than 60 verses, this whole book. The day of the Lord is used, I think it's in there like 15, 16 times. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's thinking of a day when the Lord rules, right? Think of it. Okay, this is the Lord's day, right? Why don't we, why don't we come to church on the Lord's day? Because it's the Lord's day. We, we do what God would please God, right? We, we come to church. We have communion. We sing praise to him. We pray. We read scripture. We, we have dinner with family. We do all these things that honor God, right? The day of the Lord. Other way that you may think of the day of the Lord, the way Zephaniah talks about it, is the day when God's rule is physically here, when God's wrath, when his judgment is here. It's no longer the day of man when, when we get to call the shots. The day of the Lord is when God says, okay, okay, you had your chance, now's my turn, right? The day of the Lord when God exercises his authority, and it is not a good day for those folks who live in rebellion to him. When he exercises his authority. Throughout the first two chapters, the day of the Lord is something to be feared. It's God's warning. But the day of the Lord isn't... But that's not God's desire. It's destruction. That's not what God wants, is to destroy. God's desire is the love of his people. That's why in chapter 2, he says, and this is our hope, right? That, that, where he, that God would rule in their hearts. He says in chapter 2 of Zephaniah, gather together. Gather yourselves together, you shame Lord's people. He says, you bunch of knuckleheads, you better get together, right? Get this worked out. Before that decree takes effect, before all these words come into play, and that day passes like windblown chaff before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, he says, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. All you who are humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord. Perhaps you will be covered by the Lord's protection. He says, he says if you just, come, just get together and work it out. Like, get yourselves together. Literally. He says, of Jerusalem, I thought, surely Jerusalem. You will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge wouldn't be destroyed. Or all my punishments come upon her. That's God's desire. Oh, please, Jerusalem. You're my favorite. You're my daughter. Please Come but they were still eager to act corruptly and all they did was this. I was like, I thought Jerusalem of all of them that you would be the one that would get it together, get your act together and come back to me. But no. But no. The day of the Lord is coming. But that's not his desire. It's not his desire to, to destroy. His desire is that we would turn to him, that we would see him, that we would live under his authority, that we would accept him as the ruler of our life, as our Lord, 
That's what it means to have him as our Lord. Not just our Savior, but our Lord. To live for him. When we do that, there's something dramatic that happens in this little book. Like I said, 59, 60 verses, however many there are. Something dramatic. I mean, it starts out with all this, I mean, doom and gloom and destruction. And oh my goodness, the people, the whole world is going to be destroyed. Except for those who, who finally do answer this. Who finally do turn, repent. Who come back to the Lord. Chapter 3 tells the story of what happens to those folks who come back to the Lord. He gathers them from all the nations. Verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion. Sing out loud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. This is what he wants for us. This is what he wants for us. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Wow. You know what that's like? You remember when, back when you had a little baby and you would, it would go to sleep, so you'd sing lullabies? You'd sing silly songs? Why don't you do that? Because they love you. You love it. It was an expression of love, right? It was, it was beautiful. I mean, even if you couldn't carry a tune, you didn't know the words, you just kind of made them up, right? You ever have that image of God singing over you? Like, as a wonderful child, a beloved child of God, like he's literally singing over you. I mean, we, we, we think of the angels singing, right? Us worshiping God in heaven, you know, we think of all that. But we don't think of what God, God's response to us when we turn back to him, when we, when we get awoken by, in faith to say, Lord, I'm sorry for all the things I've done. In that moment, God is singing over you. He's worshiping over you. When you approach God with humility, broken, and submitting your life to Christ, he rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you with his love. He calms you. He rejoices over you with singing. He's not singing because everything you've done. He's singing because you've accepted the things that Christ has done on your behalf. He's singing because what Jesus has done in giving you his life, that in him we can live in the presence of God Almighty as we were intended to live as he can sing over us. That's why he sings. He's a just God. God is a jealous God. He's a righteous God. The scriptures are full of God's wrath. I'm not going to deny it. Some of us, that, that wrathful God kind of makes us uncomfortable. That God would really do, like, what happened to the loving God? Well, here he is. He's wanting to sing over you. He's wanting to love you. He's a God of mercy a God of grace, a God of love. My message to you is, don't let the enemy tell you God can never love you. Don't let your enemy tell you that you are defeated, that there's no hope. Don't let your enemy tell you that this is, this is the last, you've messed up too much now. You, you, there's no coming back. 
Don't ever let your enemy tell you that God couldn't forgive that. Because it's not true. It's not true. That's a lie from Satan himself. If we're broken, God recycles. Right? God makes us new. God makes us new. That's what he wants to do. That's the call of the prophet Zephaniah. That he wants us to experience new life in Christ. Provided by Jesus. That we get to live. That we don't have to live as an enemy of God. As a target of his wrath. We don't have to. We get to choose him. Today can be the day of the Lord for you. Not a day of destruction. But a day when God begins to rule. When his rule takes over in your life. That's what today is. The day of the Lord can be for you. The day of new beginnings. The day when he takes charge. I invite you to make that choice today. I want to pray for you. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. We thank you for how you've met, you meet us in your word. We thank you how you provide this, this holy covenant and, and holy communion, Lord, as an act of us receiving your grace. And, and in that, we get to experience again the, the power of your transforming grace. That it's a real, a tangible expression of your love for us. Because God, you formed us in your image. You breathed into us a breath.